if you are from an upper Midwestern city, Gary, Detroit, or Chicago, and you attend a historically black college, there's only one potential downside. Now that potential downside can have a huge upside. And let me get to it. The one downside is, is that for the minor holidays, you know, Labor Day and when Columbus Day was a thing, it's sort of, what do you do on those long weekends? So you're just there on the campus and there's not a whole lot going on. Now, if you are fortunate to have a friend from, in my case, Mississippi, who is willing to take you home with his family during that long weekend, then you're blessed. You are double blessed if that place is Natchez, Mississippi. Natchez has provided me with some great memories and long enduring friendships. My good friend, my mainest man sent me a book that I wanna talk about and then we'll talk about on this episode. The Deepest South of All, True Stories from Natchez, Mississippi. This is a great book because it opens up a world of Natchez or explains some of the behind the scenes that I could never ever get around. You see, one of the things that I could never understand or couldn't square is that Natchez has an obsession with these antebellum homes. I mean, I'm talking about Massa's house, okay? and looking at the furniture and all of the beauty and the garden and all of that stuff. I could never square that. My thought has always been to, why not burn them? I don't have that specific thought right now. I have a different thought, meaning there's a lot to be stories to be told in those homes if we look at them the right way. The Whitney Plantation in Louisiana is an example of what we can do with those homes back to the book and back to Natchez. Through my course of uh, just personal study and understanding history, I've come to understand and know that Natchez played a major role in the slave trade and was a major producer of cotton. And at one point had more millionaires than any other city in the country except New York, more than Boston, more than Philadelphia, more than Charleston, more than New Orleans. Natchez had the second most millionaires in the country and actually had the most millionaires per capita in the United States. In other words, Natchez was a slaver's heaven. So today, these homes for Natchez's white elite serve as a gone with the wind, like a living gone with the wind theme park told through these institutions called garden clubs and something that's called pilgrimage. We'll get into more of it in this episode and in the book, The Deepest South of All, which you should read. You see, I am very familiar with black Natchez, but this Natchez of Gone with the Wind, of pilgrimage and garden club, I knew nothing about. And I didn't have any insight into it because the people that I know from Natchez don't know anything about it, it either. In other words, they ain't messing with it or they ain't effing with it. That's just not their thing. So I never had any insight into it. You see, Natchez is idyllic in its beauty. It's right there on the river. It's soulful. 
and it's lively and it's got a lot of eccentric characters. I mean, it is a great, great place. I have had great memories of it. Natchez is also the home of Richard Wright. Natchez is the home of the Deacons for Defense and Justice, whose approach to civil rights was armed self-defense and resistance. Natchez has also elected an openly gay black man as mayor with over 90% of the vote. Not over 90% of the black vote, not over 90% of the white vote, just over 90% of the vote. Natchez is a city of many contradictions and many sides. And all of this is captured in this wonderfully written book. It's captured in a way that doesn't lessen or dumb down or excuse or doesn't call out any of these contradictions. This book, The Deepest South of All, written by Richard Grant, captures all of this, and it doesn't blink. Richard joins us on this episode of The Parlay in All Blue to talk about the book. And we thank him for it and thank him in advance. And I want to tell you to go get the book in advance. But first, listen to this episode of The Parlay in All Blue. Thanks for joining us. Richard Grant, welcome to The Parlay in All Blue. Thank you for joining us. And how are you? I'm doing good. I, I've got a lot of stuff going on. And uh, this is, sounds great to just to have a conversation in the middle of it. Well, well, that's good. And I want to start with, uh, I told you this off camera, this book, The Deepest South of All True Stories from Natchez, Mississippi, is a great book. And I will tell you why from my, my standpoint, I think it's great storytelling. The characters come to life. There's a lot of like little detail that you, you put in there or just in the character of the city comes to life and just the way you string through certain themes and we'll get into it, you know, was, was very good. And it's also, you know, unsparing in terms of, of the truth of some of the things that, that we'll get into in the book in terms of the antebellum South and the, and the, and the celebration and all of those things. But, but anyway, it's a great book. All right. One thing I'd like to say was that I was researching this book, I mean, a couple of years before Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and all of that started happening. And, and Natchez was kind of like ahead of the, ahead of the national curve in, in talking about the legacy of slavery and what it, what it meant for the, for the present day situation, which is kind of surprising for a, a, a town in a remote part of Mississippi with 17,000 people. The town was having these very intense conversations about race and the legacy of slavery and the antebellum South, I, I think before the, the nation at large. So, you know, that's interesting because I was going to, to ask you about that because this book came out in 2020, 2019. This, this is, yeah, it came. It came out in 2020. I remember because all my events were cancelled. Okay, all right. Yeah, because you know I wanted to ask about that. And, and, and so, first off, just to step back and give the audience just a sense of what is the book about, and and why did you write it? You talked about you know Natchez being ahead of the curve, but what's the book about? Okay, so yeah, let's 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 lay down some some foundation here. So Natchez used to have more millionaires 
per capita than anywhere else in America, and all that money was built on cotton and slavery. During the Civil War, however, Natchez was a Unionist, and the planters invited the Union generals to use their mansions, which are the most ostentatious mansions you can imagine. They invited the Union generals to use these mansions as military headquarters. As a result of that, General Grant spared all the mansions instead of burning them down. So Natchez now, one interesting thing about it is it now has the largest concentration of antebellum homes in the South. And this very ritualistic social life takes place in these antebellum homes among the white elite. They will get dressed up in Confederate uniforms, in hoop skirts. The town for a long time has kind of marketed itself like gone, this was the real gone, for the, gone with the wind. But in the last 20 years or so, largely owing to the efforts of a few African-American activists, the town has begun to seriously question the way it sold itself as a, as a kind of dreamy, gauzy vision of the old South with slavery, just kind of, let's not talk about that, you know? Right. So it's been having this conversation, well, how do we, how do we deal with our history? How do we deal with the fact that, that, I mean, you know, we've been talking about towns tearing down monuments to enslavers, but Natchez itself is a monument to slavery in a sense, and that's how a lot of its black residents look at it. You know, you walk around and there's just these antebellum mansions everywhere. You know, not, not only was the, the money to build them from enslaving people, but the people who actually built the mansions were themselves enslaved. And in a sense, is 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 a monument to slavery. You know, I'm I'm glad you said that and I'm glad you, you started with that because I've been to Natchez, I mean I mean one of my bestest of best friends is from Natchez, Mississippi, and I've been there, you know, at least a dozen times or what have you. And when I first went there, he asked me, did I know anything about pilgrimage, right, or any of that? And he was talking about these antebellum homes. And I'm from Chicago and I don't know anything about this. We're still teenagers at this time. And, you know, I just kind of brushed it off. He actually turned me on to, to this book, to your book. And I'm going back and I'm saying, did you know all of this? And he's like, well, I didn't know it. I didn't participate in it. I don't know anybody that participated, but this is what I've been trying to tell you is that there's this, the, the, the pilgrimage and these antebellum homes. And I, and I want to get to, to that term antebellum home. And, and, and I want to be a little technical about it first, before we get into what an antebellum home is, is that Natchez is an urban area, Right. And there was planting that happened around it. Is that, do I have that correct? Yeah, Natchez was was basically a small city that was originally founded by the Spanish. And most of the plantations, the cotton plantations, were across the river in Louisiana, in the, in the alluvial plains of, of Louisiana. And these were really on an industrial scale, you know, with thousands of enslaved people picking cotton over there just on one plantation. And some of the uh, some of the Natchez millionaires had nine plantations and they owned railroads and banks and their um, their sons and daughters came out in Europe and went to Harvard. 
they were sophisticated compared to the run-of-the-mill Southern planter. And that's largely why they didn't want to secede because they knew that a civil war would follow and that the South would be destroyed. We should explain what pilgrimage is. Twice a year, the antebellum homes of Natchez opened up as kind of living museums of the Old South. And the women generally dressed in in hoop skirts and they welcome in paying tourists. And they tour them around and they talk about their family history and they show that the, all the antiques in the house. And for, for, for years and years and years, no one ever mentioned, you know, the fact that this outbuilding here was where the slaves lived. It was very much brushed under the rug, but that's, that's now changing. And some of the homeowners will talk openly about who their family enslaved, and some of them will still pretend it never happened. But it's a very strange, pilgrimage is a strange ritual. And so pilgrimage, just for a sense of it, so how many homes are roughly are we talking? How many of these antebellum homes are showing off during this time? Roughly 20, I would say. Okay, so about 20 homes. Yeah. And these aren't Mississippians coming, just solely Mississippians coming to visit. These are people coming from, from where? From all over, from all over the country, and and from Europe and Australia and and New Zealand, and yeah, I mean, I met people from all over on pilgrimage. But I would say most of the pilgrimage tourists are kind of uh, white senior citizens from the Midwest or the South, and they are dwindling in number. <laughs> right. So and, and so they're coming to visit these antebellum homes and only recently in beginning to deal with slavery and and you know the the things that happened in those homes. But Natchez has appeared to have with this, I don't know, cognitive dissonance is not a strong enough word because you have these antebellum homes, these the, that are built off of slave labor and slave trade. And we'll get to that. I want to get to Forks of the Road and, and those things and the slave trade just in and of itself in Natchez. Yeah. But you have a, a, a wealthy river city that's built off of slave commodities and slave labor that didn't want to secede from the Union, but at the same time, they're really celebrating the Confederacy in some weird way, too. Uh, all at the same time. Some, some mental <laughs> gymnastics going on there, right? So at the time, you know, you had this sophisticated sort of planter aristocracy that knew that secession would be an economic disaster and they would lose everything, which was more or less correct. But then in, in the years after the, after the Civil War, you had this movement across the South to say that, you know, this, that, that, that it had been a noble lost cause. And you had all this mythology grow up that it was about states' rights and that the slaves were happy and, you know, that whole, all of that that goes along with the lost cause. And so the generations afterwards, they grew up steeped in this mythology and the fact that they had been unionists, that the town had been largely unionist during the Civil War was forgotten. And instead, the truth was replaced by these mythologies that were not, were taught in Mississippi schools. 
I mean, you can't you can't you can't blame people for believing what what they were taught in schools and what their parents told them. I mean, it was it was a concerted campaign, largely led by white Southern women. Yeah, and so one of the ways that it's held, or that sort of the lost cause, the lie of the lost causes, is is held, is in that just through the pilgrimage, through something called tableau. Explain to our listeners what tableau is. I wish it was easier to explain because it's a very complicated thing. So, so, so tab, tableau is is a series of theatrical sketches put on in the city auditorium about the history of Natchez. But it's also a kind of a key social, and performed by children, I should say. So you have teenage boys wearing, at one point in the tableau, wearing Confederate uniforms and carrying swords. And it's traditionally it's been a romanticization of the Old South with, Absolutely. Well, in the, in the early years, in the 1930s, local African-Americans were dressed up like field hands and, and they would sing like Negro spirituals and uh, pretend to be happy picking cotton. Well, black people got, got fed up with doing that and, and boycotted the production. So then after that, there was just it was completely a whitewash. In recent years, it's been very controversial because the author Greg Isles introduced some pretty harrowing scenes of slavery into the tableau and the white people in, in the town became split as to whether this was a good idea or whether this was a, a horror. Now I'm going to have to give you a little background on the, on the garden clubs here. So the Natchez is very important in that these two garden clubs who've been feuding with each other since the 1930s, they put on the tableau and it's also, Tableau is also a mechanism of social advancement because the women whose children get picked for the kind of the plum rolls in the Tableau accrue a lot of social credit via their children. It's a very complicated thing. And it's also tied up with making money to preserve antebellum buildings in Natchez, like the, the proceeds from the pilgrimage, the proceeds from the Tableau, these historical sketches all go towards historical preservation of antebellum buildings. It's tangled. It took me a whole chapter to explain it. Well, so, and I want to get to that that chapter. You talked about that there was a point of in Tableau, and I, and I want to say that the garden club, clubs and the pilgrimages really start sort of during the Great Depression as a way for the city and, and the people who own the homes to make money to preserve the homes. So I have that Roughly correct. It all happened by accident. So there was, um, I mean, Natchez is a very beautiful place, as you know. You've been there, and it used to, in 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 the spring. They the garden club, the Natchez Garden Club, invited people from all over Mississippi and beyond to Natchez to show off their gardens in the springtime. But there was a freeze, and all the spring flowers died. And as a kind of desperate improvisation, they started inviting the visitors inside their houses. They quickly trying to clean up their houses and put pictures over the holes in the walls because Natchez was was decrepit in the 1930s. And to everyone's surprise, the visitors loved touring the homes, and that's how pilgrimage began. And they were 
And especially after Gone with the Wind happened, I mean, they were getting tens of thousands of people descending on Natchez. And the ladies would receive them wearing their hoop skirts and everyone would pretend that they were in a real life Gone with the Wind. And, you know, most of these women, they didn't have any money, but they did have black servants, right, living in the house. And they would get dressed up as, as butlers and they would dig out, you know, these antebellum outfits from the attic. And, I mean, it was uh, <laughs> quite a spectacle from a, from a modern perspective. Yeah, so so here's the thing, and in, in, in that you is a reading the book, and I've recently become aware of of Natchez and the wealth that was in Natchez. You talked about people coming into the homes in this sort of gone with the wind spectacle or reliving that, and you know, how did they square with the idea, other than just sort of not dealing with it that this was a large slave market. So better yet, why don't you just tell us what's forks of the road? What is that? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you I'm gonna tell you in the context of my first visit to Natchez, okay? I met I was at this book event in another part of Mississippi. I met this woman named Regina Charbonneau, who's a who's a, a chef and a cookbook writer and a friend of the Rolling Stones and a very kind of cosmopolitan woman. And she said, I, I didn't know anything about Natchez. And she invited me down to do a, a book event at one of her restaurants in, in Natchez. And it's really in a remote part of Mississippi. It's not on the way to anywhere. I'd never been there before. And so I I drove down there. And on, on the way into town, I saw a historical marker. And I'm in the habit of pulling over for those. And I saw that I was standing on the site of the Forks of the Road, which had been the second largest slave market in the South, the largest being New Orleans, that tens of thousands of people had been bought and sold on this ground that I was standing on. And that many of them, there was kind of two phases of American slavery. There was the kind of the upper South, which was mainly tobacco, and then once the cotton gin was invented, there was this kind of second phase in the Deep South. Natchez was the capital of it. And it was it was this industrial-sized cotton production with enslaved labor. And so a lot of slaves were marched in manacles and chains from Maryland, Virginia, all the way down to Natchez. Some of them came by river, but a lot of them were marched overland in coffles, they called them. It was, it was the biggest internal migration in American history, a much bigger migration than the, the pioneers and their wagon trains. And they were sold at the forks of the road. And it was, unlike some slave markets, it was not an auction type of situation. There was a, there was a solid price, and you, it was like buying a car. You put down a down payment, and then you, you paid it off. He paid off the note with you know, but all, all the usual cruelties of, of splitting up families was considered normal by the people doing it. So not only did you have all that money from the cotton, you had all the money from the sale of people too. So for years, the forks of the road was pretty much forgotten by everyone in Natchez. And then uh, an activist called Sir Boxley launched a campaign managed to buy the piece of ground and erect a small monument. It's now the National Park Service has taken it over. And in a few years, it's going to be a major National Park Service site. 
at the forks of the road as it as it should be in my opinion so so with that you know especially and you you started or we started the conversation with Natch is sort of being ahead of the conversation in terms of dealing with history. I, I take a little bit of an issue with that, and I'll tell you why in a second. But you have sort of this still ongoing celebration or mythology of the Old South, right, in these antebellum homes. And it's right next to the second largest slave market in the United States which was the center, the financial center of the domestic slave trade, which in the United States was actually the biggest part of the slave trade. I think a lot of people don't understand transatlantic-wise that most of the enslaved Africans went to Brazil and to the Caribbean. Percentage-wise, a smaller percentage came to the United States. It's really during that sort of cotton Aaron and people being marched from Virginia and Maryland and North Carolina to the uh, Deep South, which would be be Natchez. How do people square all of that, both the visitors and the people that are putting on the, the show? And we've kind of touched on it, but I'm wondering how do they think they can, can continue in that realm? OK, so there's, there's a few different perspectives to consider here. At a kind of a city level, the city tourist department is trying to present, you know, the full story. So they're trying to encourage tourists to to visit the antebellum homes and visit the slave market and visit the African-American Museum of History and Culture. And there's also, there was, a, I think he's out of, I think the pandemic put him out of business, but there was a young man named Jeremy Houston was running, was doing a tour of African-American historical sites in Natchez. And the tourist department in Natchez was, was basically, it, the, the, the hope was to tell the whole story and be honest about what had happened here, to not portray it as gone with the wind, but to portray these antebellum mansions for what they actually are and say, look, you know, We've also had a very interesting African-American history, not not just a history of suffering, but a lot of brilliant politicians, musicians. I mean, the first African-American member of Congress came from Natchez. Reconstruction was a very interesting time in Natchez because you had a free, black, well-educated society in Natchez. And during Reconstruction, they basically ran the town and they ran it very successfully and I think one or two of them ended up in in Congress, so, but you know, then came the Klan and the reestablishment of white supremacy. But I mean, it has a very interesting history in in a lot of different regards. And the, so, what the town has basically decided to do at a, at a city level is to try and portray its entire history in an honest way, rather than this hoop skirts and and, and mint juleps in the moonlight type of version. So it sounds like the city is trying to do that, but the garden clubs, the Natchez Garden Club and the Pilgrimage Garden Club, where are they in this? What are they doing? Very contentious subject among the garden clubs. So it basically, yeah, I mean, some of the women who have their homes on pilgrimage do talk about, honestly, about slavery and the fact that all of this was built on slavery. And they talk about the specific cruelties of their direct ancestors. But a lot of the people coming to pilgrimage want the 
what's the nice version? They don't want to handle this heavy stuff. They're on vacation, right? They just want to, they just say, oh, well, just let us see the pretty homes and let me take a picture. And the two garden clubs have different ideas and different individuals within the garden clubs have different ideas. So it's basically a, it's a hot topic. I wanted to, to say this to you. As I was reading the book, and I encourage everybody to, if you're listening, to get this book, and whether you're a Mississippian or an American or wherever you're, this is just a great book. But as you were going through and you were talking about the people who own the homes, right, and their various eccentricities, and the vast amount of alcohol that's consumed uh, during this time, goat towers and haunted antebellum homes or what have you. I'm sitting there like, wow, this is really reading like it's a a great time. Like this is just, you know, it's just all fun and games. I'm like, boy, when I talk to Richard, I'm going to say, man, you're really not balancing this out in the book. But then all of a sudden, because I'm I'm saying I know the history and their civil rights and what have you, and then you introduce the readers of your book to the Deacons of Defense, the Deacons for Defense and Justice. Who were they? Okay, so again, Natchez never quite fits the mold, right? It's always its own place. So during the civil rights era, people in Natchez basically rejected non-violence. They rejected the NAACP strategy. The NAACP was there, you know, with the, with the non-violent protests. But in Natchez, there was another element formed called the Deacons for Defense. And this was, this was armed self-defense. This was, it was a bunch of kind of working class black guys. A lot of them ex, a lot of them had, had served in World War II and they were good with guns and they liked guns, and they thought that guns were the secret to basically backing down the Klan. The biggest obstacle to progress in Natchez was the incredible brutality of the Klan. There was that was Natchez and the surrounding area had the worst Klan violence of anywhere in the South. But as these guys understood, the Klan had kind of a bully mentality. And once the deacons for defense started arming themselves, the Klan backed down, the Klan backed off. I mean, there were still incidents of violence. So in Natchez, you had, it was basically a two-pronged strategy. You had a, a, a boycott of the white-owned stores, which really hurt the city's merchant class. And you had the deacons for defense riding around with guns, backing down the Klan. And also the police were also heavily infiltrated by Klansmen. They st- threatened the police, and the police basically stopped, well, robbing people, basically. They would just round people up on the Saturday night and throw them in jail and, and extort a fine out of them. And the Deacons for Defense put a stop to that. The Deacons for Defense idea started in Louisiana, and the guys in Natchez heard about it, and they said, okay, that's, that's what we want to do here. In the end, the city caved to all the civil rights demands in Natchez, whereas in places that didn't have armed self-defense, it was basically in Mississippi I'm talking about, it was basically the federal government had to come in. And in Natchez, the, the combination of the boycott and the deacons got the demands met by the city. Not, not that everything turned into a beautiful, harmonious situation after that. 
Well, so and and Natchez at that time, because of bombings, the killing of Warless Jackson, the bombing which uh, hurt George Metcalf, which is the local NAACP head, had some very serious um, things happening there. So there was an FBI presence there. And the FBI got an assist from Nellie Jackson of Natchez. Who's Nellie Jackson? Uh, Nellie Jackson. Here's here's another only a Natchez story. Nellie Jackson was a black woman that ran a whorehouse right in the middle of the city. And you could buy T-shirts in the bars like I got it at Nellie's. And she was wide open. and, And every Christmas she would go into City Hall and give the police chief a bottle of liquor. And she was rumored to have a black book with the names of all the prominent citizens that had visited Nellie's. But also, she was a really nice woman. Everyone liked her a lot. And uh, she was very generous to needy causes. But what happened during the civil rights era is that, okay, so here's here's the thing about, about racism in the South versus the North, right? In the South, white supremacy has has always included sexual access to black women, right, in a way that it hasn't really in the, in the same way in the North. That legacy of slavery where the, where the enslaver had access to black women is just kind of like built in. So anyway, I'll, I'll give you this as background because publicly the Klan denounced Nellie's as, a, as sinful, as miscegenation, but in private, the Klansmen could not stay away from the black prostitutes at Nellie's. And after sex, they would, you know, they'd be in a kind of relaxed mood and they would spill secrets about what the Klan were doing to these black women. And at the end of the night, the women would go to Nellie and tell Nellie what they had heard. And then later on that night, four in the morning, the FBI would come along and Nellie would tell them everything she'd heard from her girl. So that was like a really uh, useful source of information for the FBI. Had the Klan ever found out that Nellie was feeding information to the FBI, they would have certainly burned down her building, I think. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, you know, there's there's a lot of, uh, for people who will pick this book up, there's a lot of colorful language that goes along with some of these stories that I would encourage everyone to 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 pick it up and and read it. I want to go back a little bit in terms of you you just touched on something just in terms of your process in writing the book. Whether you going to the various homes and the people who own the homes in pilgrimage and talking to some of the to the leaders of the garden clubs and uh, to one of the members, uh, an actual member of the Deacons for Defense, how did you get such access? I mean, you were really firsthand with a lot of people, white and black, young and old, and what have you. How long did it take to write the book, and how much time did you were you in Natchez? Okay, so with the white people, I was helped by the fact that I'd had this book out Dispatches from Pluto, which was about moving to Mississippi as a guy from London, England, and writing about what I experienced and felt. And it had done it did very well in Mississippi and, and a lot of people had liked that book. So they, they kind of knew who I who I was. And Regina Charbonneau first invited me down there and I found out that she was president of one of the garden clubs and she would put me up in her 
in her in the top room of her antebellum home, she's told people, "Yes, we keep an Englishman in the attic." And so I, I had access to her whole garden club through through her. And then the other garden club that was I, I never really got on as well with them because they knew that I was with Regina, so I was suspicious. And you know, I got to know Jeremy Houston, who led the African American historical tours and I would hang around at the Museum of African American History and Culture and I got to know the guy who runs that and there was uh, it's it's a small town it's not it's not hard to meet people and I became I, I always liked to there was a small paper for the black community there and I would um I like to stop in and chat with the editor there and it's a small I mean it's only 17,000 people so it was it was easy to meet people and you know, a lot of people had things that that they wanted me to write about, especially in the black community. Yeah, because there's a lot that that hadn't been told, and I and I will have to tell you that I, again, of the more than dozen times that I've been there, I don't think I've ever met a, a white person in or from Natchez. So a lot of this is a, a place that I thought I knew as much as an outsider would, would know it. You really captured a lot of it. To the point where we started the conversation and Natchez being ahead of the curb. Natchez is the head of the curb in some of the racial conversations. There is one point of my reading of this that I'm, I'm like, I got to ask Richard about this, is that Natchez is the oldest city in the, in the, on the Mississippi River. It's older than New Orleans, but they're both celebrating their 300th um, anniversaries, their tricentennials in roughly the same time, within a year or two apart. New Orleans, with their mayor, Mitch Landro, famously decided to take down, I think, four sort of Confederate monuments. It was Robert E. Lee and three others, a statue of Robert E. Lee and three others and what have you. In Natchez planning its tricentennial, the sort of what I would call the white power structure, the people planning it went to the black people and didn't get sort of that sort of buy-in initially. And there seemed to be some gaps in knowledge there that, that were filled in during that time. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't there for the for the, for the tricentennial, but I mean, I, just back to New Orleans, I mean, if you... If you try and look for look for traces of slavery in New Orleans, I mean, they, it's difficult. There's somebody now is running a tour, but the, the site of the largest slave market in the south of New Orleans is now like a luxury hotel, right? Oh yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You come into Natchez, you see you see the forks of the road, and you know there's a walking tour that the city encourages visitors to take around around the kind of historic downtown, and there. You know, there's 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 advertisements on 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 placards for they put these um, runaway slave ads from reprinted from. It's much what I'm saying is like the the presence of slavery in Natchez to me is much much stronger than than in New Orleans, and partly that has been because of the changes that the city has made. Having said that, on the tricentennial, the city went to Daryl White, who runs who runs the African American History Museum there, and they said, "Well, you know, what 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 do your people in that in that white Southern way, you know, what what do your people want to contribute to our tricentennial?" And uh, he said, "We're not interested. We don't, we don't see anything to celebrate here." 
And they said, well, what, what do you mean? Like, why, do, why do you feel that way? Which, you know, is a kind of an incredible question to ask. But he brought up the example of what's become known as the Parchman Ordeal, whereby the city of Natchez arrested peaceful protesters, shipped them up to Parchman Penitentiary in the, in the Mississippi Delta, and where they were basically abused and tortured and then brought back thoroughly traumatized. And the, the white city power structure, they had they'd completely erased all memory. They thought he was lying until he brought in the 300-page stack of arrest records and testimonies from from people who had experienced the parchment ordeal. Like the, the kind of white elite has it. It's, it's, the, it's the southern mind. It's got a real talent for um, denial and mythology. And I, I guess... I guess it was hard for people to process losing the war. They were so convinced that God wanted them to win the war, and then they lost the war. And then all these mental gymnastics, these big kind of edifices of of mythology start to form in the southern mind, and it becomes very good at being slippery. And I guess you have to call it self-delusion. Yes, you're you're very right about that. And you're also right that, I guess for me, it's not that New Orleans is 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 so forthcoming with it. You have to have the right tour guide, which I've had with my family, that will talk about the hotel right there, which was like a, a showroom for slavery in terms of, and you go to so many of the coffee houses that are now bars or what have you, and there's these little pack placards of saying, this is was a, a large slave market and what have you. So it's I'm not saying that neither New Orleans or Charleston or any of them have have it right at all. But I was surprised in reading your book that the white people planning the tricentennial in Natchez didn't have any recollection of the parchment ordeal or any of the things that happened during civil rights. That that to me was just sort of that that's just mind blowing because it is a small place. And and I mean there was some very violent acts. And it's also a place that's obsessed with its own history that fetishizes its history. But on the other hand, if there's something like unpleasant, you just put it in a box and like stick it in a closet, you know? It's, it is incredible to, to me as, a, as an outsider to ask a black person like why they didn't want to celebrate 300 years of, of, of slavery. Of slavery and, then se- and segregation. Why, why, and segregation is such a mild word. I call it American apartheid. I think it's such a, a small word. And, and even, even when, you know, words that um, when you're reading or what have you, when you're talking about slave traffic, you're really talking about human trafficking, right? And when you're talking about planter, you're talking about a slaver. It's so much, it's so many things that we we do in America to to not deal with things. But you you mentioned you are from London, correct? Yeah. Okay. I had a, a just in thinking here recently, I saw or we all saw Prince William. And Catherine, I think she's the Duchess of of Cambridge. She's the she, Prince William and Catherine took a visit here recently to the Caribbean, and I thought it was just super awkward. And you know, you had Jamaica sort of saying, 
yeah, we don't want to we don't want to visit it. And Barbados is is now, you know, celebrating or, or moving towards independence. But you had the crown to sort of visiting as if it were the 1950s, as if they were coming to triumph and just sort of, uh, you know, bless the citizens of the empire. And you can sort of see that things are changing or, or dying out, right? Or, or certainly attitudes are changing and dying out. And when I hear you talk about or, or read about or what you've written about pilgrimage and having children in it and having those children, you know, do rehearsals and all of those things in the dwindling population and sort of, I wonder much like that, that visual of, I saw this very awkward visit from the British monarchy to the Caribbean. Can pilgrimage sustain itself through, you know, another, if it started in 1930s, so now that's 1930s to, to now, that's 90 years can that sustain another 90 years, another 50 years? No way. It's, it's on its last legs. I'd be very surprised if it's there in, in 10 years. Yeah. It's, it's a complete anachronism in, in every way. And the people who dig it are basically people who, who loved Gone with the Wind, and they're, they're dying out, you know. And they're trying to... They're find ways to reframe it so it's you know like my friend regina just trying to make it more about food and drink like come and i'll cook for you in my antebellum home and we'll have some cocktails and you know we'll just they make it about hospitality rather than but i think it's i think it's doomed yeah so so in other words just try to make it kind of like savannah or charleston in, in that sense yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know how they do it over there, but I've I've, I've heard, you know, how do they do it over there? Well, so two two different things, and and sort of uh, first off, it's hard to get to Natchez, right? And so Charleston and Savannah are both port cities, very different. And Charleston, being the largest port in the United States for the transatlantic tr- slave trades, was the largest on sort of the upper South where they um, doesn't really deal with it all that well, very much the same. You, you'll see a lot of going to antebellum homes and people looking at the furniture and you do plantation business and I've done them all or I've done a bunch of them. And people were talking about this, this, this couch came from France and all of these things, but you have uh, a strong, Gullah Geechee population in Charleston that is committed to telling the stories. And then you have one sort of in-city home, uh, Aiken Rhett, which is not as quite as forthcoming as the the Whitney Museum in Louisiana in terms of balance of slavery, but they tell a really strong story. But what Charleston does really well is, is that Charleston it's going to be hard to find better food in Charleston. And so what, what they've really made it in terms, the, the food is great and you've got shopping from boutique shopping to high end or what have you. But if you, and, and I, and I've had the fortune of, of touring Charleston and, and more than once because it, you know, I'm interested in this kind of thing. The people, if you get an honest tour guide, especially people from the Gullah Geechee culture, will point out to you every building that was either a holding pen, 
you know, the, the whole terms of barracoon, meaning a holding pen for slaves coming off and getting them healthy to be sold, or that was a slave mart, or this actual park was a plantation, or, you know, the Mother Emanuel Church is there. So I don't know if Natchez is is, is that sort of where the, the garden cl- club is going, because it's hard to it's harder to get to Natchez than it is to Charleston, but that's my take on it. This sort of happened while I was writing the book, but um, so there's a movie director, Tate Taylor, has and his husband, partner John, they've bought up properties near Natchez and they're getting a lot of movies made in Natchez. And the population when I was there was decreasing, but it's now, Natchez is doing better now. People are people moving there. The movie, I think they've, they're filming like five movies a year there. Well, so listen, I am somebody who is squarely in the in the camp of all of these plantations and, and antebellum homes and what have you. We need to tell the truth about them. But I also, is, is, like I said, having really good friends from Natchez, I want the city and people there to do well. So hopefully they can figure that out. But you mentioned Pluto, Mississippi, just to switch gears for a minute. How did you get to, to Pluto? Okay, so I was living in New York City with my girlfriend and my dog and everything was going badly and we, we, we were running out of money and I got invited to a book conference in Mississippi where I had friends. I'd, I'd gone there originally because of music. I, I, I was listening to these, these uh, blues guys that Fat Possum Records discovered in the, in the 90s and I'd been writing about Fat Possum Records and I'd made friends in Mississippi. After the conference, my friend Martha Foose, another chef cookbook writer, she took me to her family farm in Pluto and she showed me her father's house, which was a five-bedroom farmhouse on nine acres with fruit trees by a river. And she said, it's for sale. You could probably pick it up for 130000 I was like, what? So I drove back to New York and uh, then had to say, look, honey, I know this sounds crazy, but I think we should buy this old farmhouse 40 miles from the nearest grocery store in Mississippi, a state you've never been to but have heard many bad things about. And that's how that happened. And, yeah, I lived in, lived in that farmhouse for three years, and then my wife got a job at Millsaps College in Jackson, and then we lived in Jackson. And you wrote about uh, Fat Possum Records. Tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so there was two white college students in Oxford, Mississippi, going to the Ole Miss, as they call it. And about 45 minutes north of there, there was a juke joint owned by Junior Kimbrough, and who was a bluesman, a hill country bluesman. And he was playing there. R.L. Burnside was playing there. Both of these guys were incredible musicians who played in, in a very different style to the Delta Blues style. It was just up there in the Mississippi Hills. And uh, these, well, particularly one guy, Matthew Johnson, was like, oh, I'm going to start a record label and record these guys. And so that's what he did. And he managed to he managed to get a million dollars in debt doing it. And it was, um, yeah, I, I wrote stories about it. I, I interviewed a lot of these blues guys up there. And, um, yeah, that was my kind of entry drug to Mississippi, shall we say. 
Gotcha. That's a, that's a that's a great that's a great gateway drug into Mississippi. Is the, the the blues is a great way to, to to move into Mississippi? Who is the sonic boom of the South? All right, the sonic boom of the South are as awesome as they sound. This is the uh, marching band of Jackson State University. I I had the experience of of, of hanging out with the sonic boom of the South, and uh, I write for Smithsonian Magazine. I wrote a quite a long piece about. Uh, the battle of the bands that they went to. I went out to Las Vegas with the Sonic Boom of the South. Yeah, they're just uh, one of those just kick-ass Southern marching bands. Yeah, yeah. So, so I as as we as you know, and as our audience knows, I'm a Jackson State graduate, and I love the love the boom and love your writing uh, about the. So I'll put a link out to people to check out your article in in Smithsonian. As we sort of come to the end and wrap up, I do want to go back to Natchez a little bit. What does Natchez say about America at large, especially now as we as as you see sort of this anti-CRT hysteria and laws being passed to not talk about history? What information can be gleaned from Natchez that can speak to the rest of the country in this moment? I mean, I I think I think it's it's a, it's a weird place because in one in one in one way Natchez is a very unique place. It's not like anywhere else. But looked at it another way, it's it, so many American issues are just kind of like boiled down in microcosm in in Natchez. The, you know, there's no better place to look at the the legacy of slave of race based slavery than Natchez. It's all I, I can't imagine that. Well, I don't know. Maybe the southern mind, like I said, is a, is a, is a supple <laughs> mechanism. But I can't yeah. imagine like being in Natchez and denying that sort of slavery was a was a, a kind of foundational aspect of America that's still affecting us today. You know, it just seems fantastic to me. I think that's a good, very interesting Natchez. I think all of Mississippi. So America likes to put a lot of things on on the South, especially the deep South. And Mississippi always makes it, itself available for all of the worst <laughs> tropes and stereotypes. Yeah. But it's not just Mississippi. It is America. But there is one one story in your book that I think is very important. And you told it really well that I think speaks to African-Americans or could speak to black people prior to slavery. And it is about Prince or Ibrahima. And just briefly on that, we kind of went past that, but it's a really important part of it. Yeah, it's important, it's an important part of the book. It's a, every other chapter tells his story. So Prince Ibrahima was a, a Muslim prince from West Africa who was captured in a battle, sold down the Gambia River, and then he came to New Orleans. Then he was shipped up upriver to Natchez from New Orleans, and then he was bought by a young white man his own age, and he threw other Africans there who were multilingual. He explained that he was the prince of Futajilan and that his father was the king and would pay a lot of gold for his release. And his enslaver just kind of laughed that off and nicknamed him Prince. And he was enslaved in Natchez for 40 years 
But towards the end of his life, he was recognized by an Irishman who had known him in Africa. And the Irishman got the story out that he really was an African prince. And he ended up being a celebrity. He went to the White House. He met the president. And eventually he sailed back to Africa with his with his American wife. He'd had a wife in Africa before he was captured. And uh, his relatives are all over Natchez and the, and, and the South, and I, I got to meet some of them. And that was another reminder. Just, you know, these stories don't just, like, end, you know. They, 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 they bleed into the present. No, they, they, they don't end. And, and I always tell people that Black history doesn't start with slavery, and not everybody was a prince either, like Ibrahima, but at the same time, you're talking about someone who was enslaved through the brutal slave trade. And we had uh, Howard French, who wrote the book Born in Blackness, was a uh, guest on the podcast. The bl- brutal slave trade that occurred. I like his I like his work. Yeah, he was on. And, and listen, but I think it's it's important to understand is that it, it, this was a, a man who had studied at Timbuktu and spent time at Janae, which were major cosmopolitan cities and new astrology and a lot of other things. And that his running of the plantation is coming from your book. He made Foster successful. I mean, that, that, not, in, not in total. I mean, you're talking about someone with plantations, but his sort of management of the plantation really brought a lot of wealth to the Fosters. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was, he, he was a prince, you know. He 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 had an air of authority, and all the enslaved people kind of looked up to him. And you know, he was—I mean, not quite an overseer, but um, he was—he was kind of the manager. He did everything apart from the books on the on the plantation. You know, he couldn't raise capital. He didn't do the books, but he he ran that place. And that was his kind of his his downfall for a long time because his enslaver, Thomas Foster, refused to sell him because he was invaluable. But eventually, once the once the president and the, and the foreign secretary, I, f- I forget, but some very, very senior people in D.C. eventually managed to persuade Foster to part with him. Yeah, Henry Clay. I mean, these are, these are Henry Clay and the president of the United States. These are major people that, that yeah, looked out for him. So this is great. This is a great book. Again, The Deepest South of All, True Stories from Natchez, Mississippi. I encourage everyone to get it. I think it's good for individual reading, good for book clubs, people interested in American history, people interested in in getting a good laugh, and people also interested in figuring out how can I buy another liver? Because there's a whole lot of drinking of bourbon that goes on in in this book. So uh, I need liver on me. Otherwise, I couldn't have made this book. You need need a stout liver to to make it through those Natchez cocktail parties. Yeah, listen, I was drunk just reading it. So uh, just so it, it's it, it's uh it's it's really good storytelling. As we wrap up, what does it mean to live well? That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a hard question. One one component of it to me is is increasingly in, in this in this 20th century world i feel like my senses are more important than ever so much of life takes place in virtual spaces that i'm i'm i deliberately try and cultivate my senses 
all all five of them, and I feel I feel like they're they're, they're kind of like the last honest things that are left to me. That everything else is kind of comes through media, the volume of kind of marketing that we consume, whether we want to or not. I like to, yeah. I, I live in Arizona now and I like to get out in the mountains and the deserts in particular and just experience the world through my senses. Also, you know, I, I believe in kindness and love. I believe that my job here is to, you know, make things a little better for the people around me. I hope that my books make people think a little harder about how things are. Uh, but also, I also try to be entertaining you know, I've got an active sense of humor, and I don't don't keep it out of my books. You know, I'm a I'm I'm a dad, so that's like a I have a six year old daughter, so that's obviously my main job, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot about race. You know, I I grew up in London, in a kind of multiracial part of London. I had friends from you know, you know, we all went to school together. It, it was it was. You know, there was racism, but it wasn't like American racism. And then, you know, move to when you come from that to America, it's just like, wham! It's like, wow, yeah. I've never felt so white before. It's like I've never felt this this gap between people so intensely. And I don't like it. You know, I, I, I think it's bullshit. I think that... Um, Me too, by the way. American racism, you know, this idea of categorizing people by race was designed to justify slavery. It's like, you know, white people were invented here. They came here as Germans or Irish and it's like, wait, wait, we have these skins. Like now we're white people, you know, black people came here. They they weren't black people. They were like, uh, you know, Mandingo or whatever, you know, whatever ethnic religious group they belonged to. They didn't think of themselves as Africans or black people, but suddenly like we got, America put people in these categories, and I would just like people to remember that these categories are fundamentally like bullshit. There's don't have to identify people that way. Yeah. There's before that, people identified according to religion or nationality. There's many other ways to define people. So anyway, that's my little that's how I feel about it. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, I, I'll tell you, I'll pick up something from what you talked about, experiencing the world through senses. A uh, big part of getting through COVID season one, as my niece calls it, was just being able to get out and walk and just smell and hear and what have you. And and also missing the the human touch of just not being able to interact with people as much. And I will tell you, I don't know if you know the... Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she wrote. Yeah. So she talked about being African and coming to America and not getting it. Like before she, I'm butchering this. So if I ever talk to, to, to you, don't, don't blame me, but just sort of before she came here, she was Nigerian and Igbo, which is her ethnic group, right? And when she gets to America, she's clearly black. And it's something that, that you don't understand until you're actually in it. So, yeah, I mean, um, also back, back to the senses. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think about food a lot. Yeah, I'm really, I really love my food and I, I love my wine and um, my music. And 
Yeah, that, that I, I can't imagine living well without food, wine, and music. Me neither. I couldn't in in all three. I can't. I couldn't either. You, but but I do want to ask you as 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 we begin to wrap up, or and I bet this is going to be uh, an answer that will require some 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 follow up or a question that will require some follow up. Is you are a big fan of American music. From my understanding, blues and jazz and uh, even hip hop, right? Do I have that right? Yeah, I do. I do. And yeah. Okay. All right. So a couple of couple of strands here. First, who are some of the artists that you before coming here that you really liked? It of, of those genres, any of the genres. Okay, so let's see. I'm I'm 58. When I was sort of coming up in London, we had we had punk rock started when I was, you know, 14, 15. That was a huge thing. Okay. Then the next exciting thing that came to us across the pond was Grandmaster Flash and Africa Bambata, right? And London went crazy for that. And so then I started, started listening to hip-hop, and then that kind of led me back into James Brown, Curtis Mayfield, Amaze and Frankie Beverly. I used to go see those. They were huge in London, and some of the some of the best shows I've ever seen. They would they would sell out like our big venues like forty nights in a row. That London was just crazy for like soul and funk music at that time. And then I, I kind of like found my way back through. Well, I had an uncle who was a jazz pianist. I remember he uh, on my eighteenth birthday he gave me like you know, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis and a Dizzy Gillespie and a Charlie Parker. So, yeah, and then I, then I got really into jazz. And then um, I was a, I started out as a DJ. I, I was a nightclub DJ, and we used to rent these warehouses illegally and hold these big kind of warehouse parties and sell sell beer and, uh, uh, and rent a sound system. And we would play, like, hip-hop and funk and some reggae, because there's a lot of reggae in London too, right? And I got I got really into Tom Waits for a while, but yeah, music was music was always my thing, and much more much more fun to be a DJ than a writer stuck by yourself at a desk, you know. Much more much more fun to get under people dancing in a nightclub. So and and okay, and thank you for that. And and listen, you've 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 got a lot of my favorites on there too. For uh, definitely Curtis Mayfield, James Brown, Grandmaster Flash. My kids don't know who that is, but they should. Al, Al Green, Al Green still still melts, melts my heart. I'm, I'm. Do you know that song? It's simply beautiful. Oh yeah, no, yes, yes. Uh, my sister who listens to the show, thank you for listening. Out on the guitar right now. Yeah, listen, we we grew up in an Al Green field household, so I yes, we know Al Green really well. One last question, music, and I'll let you go here is from your time in Mississippi, and I'm not necessarily talking about Fat Possum Records or anything or any body that you've written about per se but if there is a blues record or feeling that you would want to say so when i have been when i was in pluto or when i was in natchez this sort of artist or record or or song really fit sort of the moment or how i feel because you know it's one thing to hear it but you're there and experiencing it 
Okay, so Jimmy Duck Holmes is a blues artist, and he owns a he owns the Blue Front Cafe, one of the last juke joints in Mississippi. And I remember going there the night before my wedding with a bunch of people, some of them local, some of them out of town. And he's got his that he's from Bentonia, Mississippi, where Skip James was from. And they tune their guitars in a special way, and they have this very kind of haunting kind of spooky sound and i'll never forget that night where he was he was up on stage a friend of mine was playing with him one of the one of the tractor drivers off the farm he was up there playing and and the the train was like rolling past and it was just one of those unforgettable nights with that bentonia blues running running right through the middle of it and he's he's just uh made it he just i think he just he was nominated for a Grammy, like the uh, the guy from the Black Keys found out about him and re- recorded, the Black Keys recorded, I think, in his juke joint and then they recorded an, an album of his. But, yeah, he was, it was sad, man. The first time I saw him, it was in, it was in this kind of like restaurant dining area in Yazoo City, Mississippi, and it was it was basically a bunch of, a bunch of white people from there would get together once a month and and, and they, they hired him to play. And I was just like mesmerized by him and they were just, just chatting away and ignoring him. And I went up to him and like, tell me about this type of blues. And he's like, I can tell you're not from around here. Hey, as someone who is a big jazz fan, I have been in places where I've seen giants playing and people sort of talking over it and, and what have you, but that's, that's all a part of it. We've got to deal with these antebellum homes and get the schools funded right first. And maybe then we'll get to <laughs> the proper right. respect exactly. for all of the music. So it, it's, it's one thing at a time. Hey, Richard, I want to thank you again. This is a great book. The deepest South of all. Is this Regina? Or who's, who's on the cover? Okay, so the black guy is Sir Boxley. He's the activist that got the Falkland Road recognized. And this is Miss Betty Jenkins, who is is a senior figure in one of the garden clubs. She also owns a tugboat company on the on the Mississippi River. But yeah, I was pretty happy with the cover. No, it's a it's 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 a great book, great cover, great job, great work on it. I want to thank you for joining us on the Parlay in All Blue. That button you see, it says leave. I'm going to say bye to the audience, but ask you just to not do anything so I can stay, say a proper uh, goodbye and thank you to me, to, to you, because my folks are from the uh, South too, from Alabama. And, 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 and we, we say goodbye and thank you in the proper way. So, but thank you for joining us on the parlay and all blue, everyone else get the book and we appreciate you listening. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.